Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. The Angry Street, A Bad Dream, uh, also known as A Somewhat Improbable Story by G.K. Chesterton. Uh, this is first published in, I, I want to say, 1908. Yeah, 1908. Um, I, I was wondering about that when I was first reading it. it. It felt like it was set in the 19th century, but maybe, like, I was thinking about how it works. It is kind of a timeless story, at least it's modern in some senses as well. Uh, the fact that people have silk hats in it uh, makes it sort of old-fashioned, I guess. But everything else about it feels fairly modern. I'm I'm not sure what you mean, Jesse. Um, I do think of it as sort of a timeless story because I think of it as a philosophical story. Yeah. That is to say, if, if I'm reading... Uh, if I'm reading Plato's parable of the cave, um, I really am not worried whether the the people shackled to the wall of the cave are wearing loincloths or silk top hats. <laughs> well, but, that, that's but, one of the things that sort of that maybe there's something else in mind. Maybe there's something no, no, that's exactly that's exactly like so. There's a line fairly early on. Um, it's it's a beautiful line. Um, each was in fact bound by a chain, the heaviest chain ever tied to a man. It is called a watch chain. Um, so I don't carry a watch chain. Um, I don't carry a watch, but I do carry a phone and the phone has the time on it. And if I lose my phone, I'm in trouble, right? We are, we are bound to the clock. And that is, I don't know that that's true in, uh, in the ancient world, but I have a feeling it was almost true in Plato's time, uh, at least for some things. It, the, the time of day would have been import- very important. Um, maybe not in the same exact way, but certainly it, it feels very modern in that respect. Yes, I, I, I do think that uh, the, the notion that we've become automated by our machines is uh, an important one that, that people have pointed to certainly since the Renaissance. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, I think, one of the, the crucial critiques here, that the story begins, I'll just remind you, because um, I'd like to summarize it briefly, because I don't think there's a lot here in terms of ordinary material. It's more the tone with which it's being Uh, reported and discussed that seems to me to be the substance of this piece of the angry street is about a street that gets angry right so the 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 opening of the story is a spectacular somewhat lengthy paragraph uh, in which the narrator is letting us know that he doesn't even know if this is a story he's ever encountered before Mm -hmm. uh, which is a marvelous marvelous demonstration rather than discussion a demonstration of the inability to know what's really in your own head is it fact is it fiction is it dream is it memory is it fantasy is it the future is it the past 
it's it's an extraordinary paragraph, which I, I think we should read at some point. But sure. but just sure. to get the summary, uh, once he has said this, how he's not sure about the story, what its status is ontologically, um, what kind of a thing it is that he has in his head, um, he then tells the story, and he says, well, let's let's make believe it's a story. Um, and basically, he says that he was sitting in a restaurant and somebody else came in and sat down opposite him, which happens in not too much in the United States, but in uh, cafeterias that happens. And then, so someone comes in, sits down on the other side of the table and uh, and winds up telling him a story because of the watch. You know, he's, he's you know, he looks at the watch and. Somehow these men understand each other by their their eyes. Uh, they understand things much more detailed about what's going on than I think can be done. But but they see it, and the fellow decides to tell our narrator his story, and his story uh, again has to do with with clockwork. Um, we have the key notion of forty years, which is that biblical notion of death and renewal, uh, rebirth. And what he says is that, that is the, the inner narrator, for 40 years, he always took the same route home from work, right? He, he was like clockwork. Um, and then one day, the street just lifted itself up. And the further, he, the harder he went, went to, to climb up the street, the harder it was to climb. It just kept, and it turns out that the street was angry at him because it hadn't paid attention right? It was going to heaven, right? But how are you going to get to heaven? Why was it going to heaven? For justice. And then we get a a key moral statement. Remember always that there is one thing that cannot be endured by anybody or anything. That one unendurable thing is to be overworked and also neglected. And we're then told, you know, you can be overworked, but if people really appreciate what you're doing, then you feel okay being overworked. You could be neglected, but if they leave you alone to your own devices, you think, oh good, I've got my freedom. But if you're both overworked and neglected, which means if you are chained to the industrial machine and have to just do it like clockwork, um, that is terrible. And the street is angry because it's made to transport this guy, you know, to let him use it. And he never looks, he never looks around to appreciate the stores and the people and the pavement. I mean, it's as if he, he doesn't, he neglects the street and it is overworked. And so in anger, it is rising up to heaven for justice. Uh, and so the story ends. Um, and you, he cried terribly, what do you think the road thinks of you? Does the road, which of course metaphorically is what do you think life thinks of you? Are you paying enough attention as you go through life? Are you, what do you think the road thinks that you're alive? Are you alive day after day, year after year? You have gone to Old Gate Station. Since then I have respected the things called inanimate, our outer narrator says. And bowing slightly to the mustard pot, I assume on the table between the two diners, the man in the restaurant withdrew. That's the end of the story. It doesn't get back to the opening discussion about what's the status of things in my mind um, or in anyone's mind. So it's a, it's a philosophical tale about how we know things and what it would mean if we don't actually know them, if we don't pay attention to know them. So I, I think it's a it is a 
a beautiful corrective fantasy mm -hmm. our rushing through just what you said jesse the modern world mm -hmm. yeah there's um there's a a lot of humor in it i mean that ending bowing to a mustard pot um it's ridiculous but he is pointing to something real and i think um it's something that just this morning i heard on the radio um they're saying uh why, why prices of groceries have dropped recently you know it's because amazon is getting into the market of delivering groceries and companies are worried blah 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 right but then just one point in the in the piece it said and of course today people are eating out more right and they're eating on the go and eating at their desks and right? and and this is of course in 2017 uh, not 1908 <laughs> right. but uh going back to that very first opening paragraph What's so funny is that the time and setting of this story isn't in 1908. If Well, it could be, but it isn't. I cannot remember whether this tale is true or not. Okay. If I had read it through very carefully, I have a suspicion that I should come to the conclusion that it is not. But, unfortunately, I cannot read it through very carefully because, you see, it is not written yet. So... That's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. The imagined, the Im image and idea of it clung to me through a great part of my boyhood. I may have dreamt it before I could talk, or told it to myself before I could read, or read it before I could remember. On the whole, however, I am certain that I did not read it. For children have very clear memories about things like that, and of the books of which I was really fond, I can still remember not only the shape and bulk and binding, but even the position of the printed words on many of the pages. On the whole, I incline to the opinion that it happened to me before I was born. And that's a pretty interesting statement. Um, I'm wondering if that's not Chesterton as much as uh, some fictional narrator he's conjured up. And then... I understand, yeah. And then when it continues into the body, it, 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 after, you know, a little page break, it says, at any rate, let us tell the story now with all the advantages and the atmosphere that has clung to it. And then he says, you may suppose me for the sake of argument sitting at a lunch, right? So it's not an actual place. It's just this vision that he's conjuring up a bad dream, a somewhat improbable story, uh, and it's not even the. I don't even think it matters that the street is angry, because the reverence that this character pay the the, the uh, inner inner narrator pays to the objects around him is for fear that they too will become angry. Right. The reason he cares about the chair and the table is for the same reason. So let me just read on a little bit here. Uh, I'll come back to that. Now, among <laughs> these, there entered and sat down opposite to me a man who almost immediately opened an uninterrupted monologue. He was like all the other men in the dress. 
yet he was startling op- startlingly opposite to them in all manner. He wore a highly shiny hat and a long frock coat, but he wore them as such solemn things were meant to be worn. He wore the silk hat as if it were a mitre, and the frock coat as if it were an eph- the ephod of a high priest. He not only hung up his hat on the peg, which no one else does, but he almost he almost seemed such was his stateliness almost to ask permission of the hat for doing so and to apologize to the peg for making use of it when he had sat down on the wooden chair with an air of one considering its feelings and giving a sort of slight stoop or bow to the wooden table itself as if as if it were an altar i could not help for some uh comment springing to my lips for the man was big and well right so this is actually uh, a kind of primitive religion that, well, I, I don't know, primitive, kind of unpopular religion in the modern era. How, how about that? Um, that uh, natives of North America practice with regards to the forests and the plants and the animals, right? Making use of, of all of these things is not to be done casually, right? You have to pay respect to everything that you use. And that doesn't mean you can't kill things or use them, but it means you have to consider them. And that is something we don't really do for most uh, uh, non-humans, basically. Um, We might do it for some animals, but we, we, we don't consciously do it for most uh, non-living things. And so I think that uh, that's really what he's pointing to here. And that's sort of the, um, he, the fact that he, he, he doesn't know where it's coming from, um, that, he, that it, it happened to me before I was born. I don't know. I think he's right. that This did happen to him before he, he was born. Yeah. You see what I mean? I do. There are two philosophical issues for me that that you're pointing us toward through Chesterton's words. One has to do with the the nature of the the world in which it is reasonable to say um, uh, this happened to me before I was born, and the other has to do with the explanation in that world for what's going on. That is the street the angered street um, seeking justice. What does justice mean in that world? Um, The first, uh, the easiest way to suggest what's going on here is that Chesterton, who who eventually becomes quite a committed Christian, um, that Chesterton is giving us a platonic view of Christianity. Um, That as with Plato, um, knowledge comes by unforgetting that which you had forgotten in the process of going from being a soul in its purity to uh, an actual uh, sublunary human being. You know, you, you, we're all imperfect. We're all marked by being of the world. And sometimes we can unforget those ideas that we used to have. So the things that happen to you before you're born um, those are those insights that a Platonist would say that we get. That's their notion of discovery. Um, there is not that same inventio that Aristotle sees. So Thomas Aquinas sort of moves Christianity 
in the 12th century, I guess, um, toward Aristotle. But if you are a fundamental reader of the New Testament, um, it's it's pretty easy to read it as Platonic. In fact, it was quite a, a bit of intellectual jujitsu for Aquinas to make it the Aristotelian. So I think we have here, not that Christ, Christianity is explicitly mentioned, but all those things you were talking about with the high priest and the garments and so on. Um, and of course, later, the, the notion that we're going toward heaven this is a platonic heaven. It's one that has a certain kind of purity up there. Um, and I think that's comforting. That may be why this fellow wants to tell the story. So you'd like to believe that there is a world in which even the street could seek justice. Now, the other end of what I was thinking about here with, well, in that world, what kind of justice is it? Uh, I'm reminded that there are, according to many philosophers, really four kinds of justice. There's procedural justice. You know, everybody's got to have the same procedure. And if the outcomes differ, they differ. Um, there's distributive justice. You know, everybody deserves whatever they deserve, either evenly or according to their age or, you know, however you do it. There's distributive justice. There is restorative justice. Um, well, you know, you did this bad thing, but you can make up for it by mowing the person's lawn for the next year, right, or whatever. Um, and then there is retributive justice. Um, by golly, I'm going to get even with you for what you did. Another revenge. Um, and the question I have in this story is, okay, it's a platonic world. There is a pure possibility. Um, and, and I want to know of those kinds of justices. Well, clearly it's not procedural justice, right? We're not trying to make sure that our inner narrator uh, learns to, you know, is treated the same as other people. Um, it's not um, distributive justice. Um, let's make sure he gets what everybody else has gotten. It's either restorative or retributive. And I think that, that the, the fantasy, the, the insight that comes from before the outer narrator was born is that if you are punished in this world, that is, if there is retribution, it is to give you something you, you had lost. Maybe it's that knowledge that you lost getting born, right? It is restorative. That is, the inner narrator had a frightening experience after which he's learned to, to pay his respects to the mustard pot. But the outer narrator hasn't had the experience. He's just heard the story, and the story rings true to him. Mm -hmm. It is, in a way, I think, like the story that many Christians see in the life of Jesus. There is someone else's example of a terrible and painful death. But believing in that story to a believing Christian means you have the promise of a perfect life that accords with the world as it should have been perfectly even before you were born. So I think this is uh, not a doctrinaire Christian story in at all, but it's trying to take the same approach that 
that the, the Bible takes for Christians. Read this and understand how to be a better person in the world. Yeah, there's a, um, a character who gives the... Uh, you, you said there was only two characters. Oh, no, maybe that's a previous story. There's not that many characters in this, but uh, one of the characters that we meet, um, this uh, reverent gentleman describing his experience of walking the same street for 40 years, when, when the street g- gets angry and starts tilting up towards heaven... Um, at one point it says like a lid, which I'm, I I kind of want somebody to explain to me. Um, like, a, it, like a lid, L-I-D. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. I was thinking, is that a hat? <laughs> oh, no. I'm not sure. But he at one point uh, along the street, he sees a figure. And he says to the figure, if you are a kind angel, I said, or a wise devil, or have anything in common with mankind, tell me what it is the street what is this street possessed of devils? And they have um, sort of a, a back and forth exchange. And then the uh, being says, you have worked this street to death, and yet you have never remembered its existence. That's sort of the central conceit of the story, right? But the next line is really interesting. If you had owned a healthy democracy, even of pagans, they would have hung this street with garlands and given its na- it the name of a god. Then it would have gone quietly. So this is actually, um, it's a funny thing, right? Is that ev- in the ancient Roman world prior to Christianity, um, there were literally gods for everything, right? We only think of the Olympian gods generally, but there's a a god for the sewers of rome the cloacina right the goddess of the great drain the one that cleanses the city takes the dirty bad water out and makes makes it so that everybody doesn't get sick um when england london um had no good sewer system people were getting sick all the time and it was causing a hell of a lot of problems it's kind of attention is what it is, right? But if you just merely say we need to pay attention to this, that's not the same thing as as revering it, right? His hat is that of a a priest's. He has to have a reverence for these things. Otherwise, it's not enough. Mere, you know, merely seeing the street and noting that it has potholes is not enough to say you've done a disservice to this street, right? And this needs to be rectified. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't say, you know, all of our problems in society are caused by by um, sort of a lack of attention to, uh, to the reverence we should have for things. But um, it, it is the idea of blasphemy towards... towards um, inanimate objects is is ridiculous in our in our world and yet it has a kind of wisdom to it that i think this story is claiming um is real when i I think that's right i think that's right but i do think that um that that while that is right the metaphoric um parts of the story are equally strong. That is, the walk home 
is a journey. The, the street is a path through life. The inanimate objects are the things of the world. And when we are asked to understand the problem, um, those things that are pointed to specifically are indeed um, people, right? That line about nobody can endure being both overworked and neglected. Uh, I, I think that that we need to understand that any little thing, any little thing can be enormously important in, in the ways you're talking about, even in little inanimate things. Um, when the gentleman gets up to leave the table, um, that very last line, he could bow slightly to his dinner companion, his luncheon companion. He could bow slightly to the table. He could bow slightly to anything. But in fact, he bows slightly to the mustard pot. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there, there are two parts of that term mustard pot that are worth taking into account. One is the pot. That is, I don't know how you cook, Jesse, mm-hmm. but if I'm cooking something and in a covered pot and I go and take the lid off, I, I don't usually grasp the handle and pick the lid straight up. Uh, because, you know, might get burned by the steam escaping. I take the handle in the middle of the lid, say, and I rotate my hand so that the lid goes up more on one side than the other. Hmm. So, right. And I think that's what it means when it says it's it ro- it rose up like a lid. Right. And as it, it didn't have the whole street just unparalleled, get six feet higher. It's that at one end it got higher, the other end it didn't get so much higher. Mm-hmm. It rose up like a lid, but that also means that there's something brewing underneath. There's there's a life, there's a force in this animate. And what kind of force is it? Well, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, <laughs> you can move mountains. <laughs> so the thing that's cooking in this pot, I realize that the phrase mustard pot is a is a phrase meaning a a bottle full of mustard. It's right. not a cooking of the pot, but but the word pot is in there. There's no doubt about it. Um, the the bowing slightly to the mustard pot, I think, is a is a respectful sign on the part of the inner narrator that whether you're a Christian or not, this notion that having faith in the littlest things can make the world and your relations with others on your journey down the street of life better. I think that's what he's after. It's a, mm. it's a last line. And uh, I think that that line now is explained. Uh, the name written on it was the same. The shuttered shops were the same. The lamp posts and the whole look of the perspective was the same. Only it was tilted upwards like a lid. So um, this reminds me of, you know, like when you've, you're making hot dogs and you've got your bottle of mustard and you've got your bottle of ketchup and you spray some of it on or spurt some of it onto your your hot dog um some of it might get a little bit messy uh, near the lid's end and if you're the kind of person who just sort of leaves it like that it kind of gets yucked up and and ruins things right so it's in the same situation if you're in a person who walks into a cafeteria and you set down your tray and you eat your food and then you walk away leaving a mess on the table. Um, not because 
you want to make things ruinous for other people, but because you don't care, it's you're not paying any attention to it. Um, the street will get angry eventually, right? The the street, as in the people who live there, is a kind of um, paying it attention that I think this is is largely about. It, it can be metaphorical, right? But uh, when the when the Romans garland the street and pay reverence to the the god of that street, there is no god to receive that fetting, but there are people there to see the respect given. There are. That's that's the reading, and I'm sure Chesterton was aware of it mm-hmm. for for the people who simply want to get the moral. The other reading, which comes out the same in terms of your behavior is the one that says, and this is for Christians who mm. want to get moral. Mm-hmm. You know, Chesterton doesn't mind being pagan um, because if you say, but, but that's, that's not orthodox is, Oh, well, it's just a story. Mm-hmm. And that of course is what that first opening paragraph is about that. By God, there are stories and there are stories that maybe have been so true for so long that they've been with us from before we were born. Attention must be paid. But there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.